Welcome to another episode of Before You Kill Yourself with your host, Leo Flowers. I am Leo Flowers. Today's guest is Heidi Bartle. You might notice her or remember her voice because she was on a podcast before. Uh, it was titled Untangling Sadness, Stress, Stomach Aches, Bipolar 2, and Asking for Help. If you don't still don't remember, she's also the author of when mommy feels sad a mother's journey through depression welcome back to the podcast heidi thank you so much i'm happy to be here uh so you know i did this thing where i started reaching out to guests who were on before because i love a where are they now kind of thing yeah. and, <laughs> and you responded with that you went through a suicidal phase since the last time that we talked uh would you care to open up about that Sure. Um, it is an interesting reason to reconnect. <laughs> uh, so last December, about 10 months ago, I started having unexplained nausea. It didn't make sense, but it was 24-7. I saw several doctors. They couldn't help at all. I, last time I was on this podcast, I mentioned having a treacherous pregnancy that ended up with PTSD related to nausea. It's a real thing. And it was no small thing for me to be nauseated 24 hours a day. I have bipolar disorder. As we discussed on the first episode, uh, the primary feature is depression. So it wasn't a huge leap for me to be very depressed during a time when I was physically unwell and there was no explanation or really cause for hope that we could get out of this other than just time passing. So in February, um, after about two months of that experience, um, I landed with some serious suicidal thoughts and it was a, it was a very dark time. I couldn't imagine continuing to exist in my present state. And I didn't have any hope that the situation was going to change. So I just, <laughs> I just was thinking about ending my life and it wasn't pretty, but it also wasn't my first rodeo. I have had um, phases of suicidal thoughts several times in the past. And I'm a girl who has every reason to live. I have every blessing you can think of, every happy thought, every um, wonderful relationship. So um, for me, it's my illness. It's the bipolar it's the depression. That's what triggers these um, episodes. And also before my mania was managed with medication, um, I was prone to big crashes after a manic episode that usually ended in suicidal thoughts. So that's my story. Uh, a lot to unpack here. One, thank <laughs> you for sharing that because I, I'm sure that there are others who've been through this. And at the very least, have been through depression. And we know what a, a weight that can feel like. It just makes brushing your teeth seem like the hardest thing in the world sometimes. Yep. Nausea, that's not something that I have experienced to any extent. Can you go into a bit more detail as to what that felt like for you? Is it stomach pain, chest headaches? Is it 24-7? Were you unable to work? Like, how much did it, what did it feel like, one, and how much did it impact your life? Nausea for me is just feeling like I'm going to throw up. There is a kind of a lump in the back of my throat that I can't clear, and if I cough, I'm afraid that I'm going to lose it. <laughs> um, there also is kind of a headache, lightheadedness uh, that accompanies that. It just feels like you have the stomach flu, but I had the stomach flu for five months. It was awful. Yeah, that sounds terrible. I mean, I remember I had food poisoning once and I I had suicidal thoughts for sure. Like the pain is un, uh, it's come, it was coming out of both ends. I felt like it was never going to stop. And it, it's just, I was like, oh, I, like this, it, it wasn't, even that painful it was just so uncomfortable and like you said it was like i can't imagine living my life like this 
mm-hmm. um, you know, just kind of incapacitated and uh, feeling like it was never going to end. So it felt like the stomach flu, you're going to throw up all the time. It, and and of course, like I would imagine you have to think about like how embarrassing that would be to, you know, you're in a meeting, you're out in public. And oh, sure. Yeah. How how were you? How did you manage those nausea symptoms? Like what were you given? Was there any medication? Were there breathing exercises? Like what were in the beginning? There wasn't any. Yeah, I'm sorry. No, go ahead. The. In the beginning, there wasn't any medication. Um, I didn't feel like the doctors believed me, partly because I showed up um, put together. You know, I was dressed and I had makeup on and I was just trying really hard to live my life. But everywhere I went, I made sure I knew where the garbage cans were and where the bathrooms were. (laughs) And that's a tough way to live, too. It is bred a lot of anxiety for me that I wouldn't be able to get to a bathroom if I needed it. Um, and that I'm a very loud barfer (laughs) and I didn't want anyone to hear me. Uh, it, it's pretty funny to look back on, but living it was pretty devastating. I spent a lot of time in bed and I was running our charity for Christmas for the first two or three weeks of my nausea episode, um, I run a charity at Christmas time and uh, throughout the year. And we were in our big Christmas push and I just had to push through. I could not stop and take a break. I rested when I could. I, you know, I would nap when I could. After the holidays, I really crashed hard because I hadn't been giving my body the rest that it needed. And that's what eventually led to the severe downhill in February. You you know, you don't realize how few bathrooms there are until you need one. (laughs) You know, like I I think about that. I mean, as a guy, I'm pretty lucky, but I think about women. Then I think about if a woman is sick. I think about if a woman is sick and pregnant, like like the the lack of access to restrooms uh, is appalling uh, on some level. And I don't know if other countries have figured out how to do that I heard in Japan there are plenty of public restrooms but I don't know but, but it just seems like uh something that truly needs to be addressed I mean because I don't think we want people doing it on the sidewalks right it's like there's nowhere for you to go you can't do it on yeah. the sidewalks that's trouble you can't do it in the restaurant you got it anyway and then they want you to buy something if you want to exactly it's like this is a five-star restaurant do you do you really want me to i gotta i gotta sit down order and then wait and you know anyway and then throw up in their toilet right i probably wouldn't choose a five-star restaurant my world got pretty small i i only went places that i knew Mm. and things that were familiar so the restrooms weren't as much of an issue as the psychological toll that it took um that the illness took on me. Yeah. I mean, what were some of those thoughts that accompanied that? I mean, besides the, I can't go on, uh, I can't imagine the rest of my life like this. Were you, what other things were you thinking about also that, that added to that pain? Um, it felt the whole episode felt very much like being pregnant and the, because I developed PTSD related to nausea, I was extremely ill in that pregnancy. Um, nausea is still a trigger. 12 years later, it's still a trigger. And if I ever feel, even feel nauseated for five minutes, I am transported back to the trauma of that scary pregnancy. So I spent a lot of time during those five months feeling um, first of all, worried that I'm pregnant. (laughs) I'm 44 and I have five children and the, the prospect of being pregnant just from a practical nine month standpoint is a huge risk to me. I took a lot of pregnancy tests during that time because I was sure that that's what it was, but I was, I was frustrated with my body for 
giving triggers to such a traumatic event. I was frustrated with my body for being broken in one more way. That is kind of a recurring issue for me that I have several health issues and I was mad at my body for giving me one more thing to deal with, one more uncomfortable thing. Why is it always me? My friends are never sick, things like that. Yeah, we start comparing ourselves to other people. It seems like everybody else is living a great life. And you're like, they don't even eat as healthy as I do. They don't even they don't even drink as much water. And how how are they out there clicking their heels and going on cruises and everything like that? Um right. and and I think what adds what it sounds like what added to that pain was the fact that medical professionals, doctors are not believing you. They mm-hmm. they see and you show up, you know, you got your hair all did up, looking <laughs> all glammed up, right? Like you got going out for the Saturday and they're like, nah, nah, you look, you look, you look fine. Cause I've had that experience where I went in, um, with breathing issues. I was on a hike and then they had to be rescued. They had to like helicopter me off of this hike. Oh my goodness. And when I get to the hospital, they look at me and they're like, you're fine. Like they ran tests. And I remember the doctor coming in the cardi the cardiologist comes in and he's like uh look at you you look good you're fine and i was like i look good i'm fine like okay you know so i understand now why sometimes people you have to be dramatic right you can't you can't just be like oh the pain's at a three or a five or it's all right i can manage or it comes you gotta be like it's at a 10 all the time i feel like i'm dying Right. End of the world. It's all over. Which in my case would not have been true, but I might have gotten more attention. Yes. Yeah, it's unfortunate, right? Like we have to uh, exaggerate to to get someone to take the test to look at us. Because if we die from it, they're not held accountable. You know, it's just, oh, we missed it. It didn't show up on the test. But, you know, they never gave us the the right test um, to, to figure out what was going on. Um, and, and then, you know, you mentioned something also about, you know, you spent a lot of time in bed, which I would imagine adds to the more physical pain. Because for me, I know when I lay around, if I lay around for too long, then I ache more when I try to get up and then I feel worse about myself. So then yeah. I lay in bed more like it becomes this vicious cycle of. Yeah. And lying in a dark room when you're already depressed is just not a good idea. Mm. Um, I watched the entire series of castle um, (laughs) in, I don't know, four weeks or something, maybe not even four weeks, but how many, wait, how many seasons is castle? Like 20? Uh, Seven. Seven? Oh, okay. I thought it was like law and order SVU where they have like 24. (laughs) See, I was like, wow. But no, but it was, uh, it was a lot of TV in a yeah. short period of time and it didn't do. Now, if I watch an episode of that, I think about how sick I was. Wow. So I can't, the show is ruined for me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It was such a, a great, sh- it is such a great show. You know, you mentioned something earlier also, Heidi, about I have, you said I have every reason to live. And I could imagine that would make the pain. A, a little it would add to the heaviness of it, the weight of it, because you're like, I checked all the boxes. I did all the right things. I'm married. I have five great kids, I have a great career. You know, uh, I have friends and I have this, I have that. I've done this, I've done that. And you're like, and yet here I am. Yes, <laughs> that's, that's very observant. I, there on any psychological issue that I have, there is a thick layer of judgment from me that I struggle with. And so no one else was telling me you're such a loser for being sick again. No one was saying that, but I was thinking that I was wishing that no one would notice that I had missed church because I was throwing up a home because then they would know that I was sick. Um, I, I always judge myself for 
uh, negative things that are going on with my body and in my life. And that absolutely makes things worse because there's the primary emotion and then there's the secondary judgment that I slap on it that just makes kind of magnifies everything. When you think about the voice of the judgment, right? You said there's the primary emotion and mm-hmm. then there's the secondary judgment that comes with it. And I read a quote, it said, uh, it talks about the two darts of suffering. And the first dart is the actual event, right? If uh, somebody punches you in the stomach, there's the suffering from that. But then the second dart is like of suffering is if I go out to drink because I got punched in the stomach. It's like now I'm adding to the suffering. And it sounds like your judgment is that second dart of of suffering. When you think about the things that you're saying to yourself in those moments, whose voice is that? Is that always mine? It's always yours. Yeah. No, nothing from childhood, nothing from the media. Nope. Mm. It's me. And I think it's me trying to protect myself against further pain. If I judge myself, then other people won't judge me. Which is really sad because other people aren't judging me. Other people are wrapped up in their own lives. They don't care. So. Did that serve you? I'm assuming that served you at some point. For it to be so strong. The judgment. Because you mentioned that it was. The judgment is there to protect you from the, so that other people don't judge you from the, from that pain of others. Um, how did that serve you in some way in the past? I think I thought it was serving me, mm. but I don't think it was in actual fact. It doesn't serve me to judge myself and belittle myself and um, make negative comments toward myself thinking that if I do that, I'm going to beat someone to the punch, you know, so-and-so is going to say this negative thing. So I'll just get there first. That doesn't help me at all. It's uh, sometimes I still do it, but I am trying to be more aware and be kinder to myself. So it's almost like a preemptive strike, right? Yes. If if I know the pain is coming, it's, it's so funny because I realize I'm kind of doing that now with money. Like, I feel like I have a lot of money going out and I'm like, I'm going to lose it all. So now I'm spending, I'm like, well, if I spend it, if I just spend it on stuff I don't need, then they can't take that, you know, uh, it, it's, it's ridiculous thinking, but it's, it's a financial preemptive strike cycle that I've, I've noticed in myself. Um, where were those strikes coming from? I would assume then that there were judgments being slung your way at some point in your life. Or w- w- did those never even manifest? That, that Did you, were you trying to jump in front of a train that never showed up? Mostly, yes. Mm-hmm. I think in high school, there were some things where people were judging inaccurately and thought they knew what was happening and things like that. That's ancient history. And I just don't want to dwell there. but. Mm-hmm. I think most of the time I like that waiting for the train that never came. That's, that's more accurate. I think I've just learned that people don't spend a lot of time thinking about other people just to be critical. You know, I I know lots of people who think about other people in order to help them and to love them and to serve them. but. The, the friends that I know, the people who helped me through this horrible place did not judge me. They welcomed me with open arms as soon as I said the words. And it was a really good lesson for me to realize that I could talk to people about what mattered to me and they wouldn't judge me. They would just love me. How did you approach that conversation? Because I would imagine there are people listening in who are like, hey, I've opened up and I was judged or they've never sure. opened up and they're not sure how to. Where do you start? Because there's that right. fear of like, I don't want to overburden this person with my problems. That's it's a great question. 
in February, when I was at my lowest, I had been seeing a therapist regularly. I mean, I have for 12 years, but she recommended that I assemble a team of friends to help me, not just one person, but a team of people. And the first person that I talked to about it, it actually was via text. It wasn't planned. Um, Talking to her was planned in my mind, but And I had missed a couple of opportunities to talk to her because I didn't want to ruin the conversation. (laughs) But I canceled plans we had. And I just told her that I wasn't feeling well, which was like the most giant understatement of the century. But I said I wasn't feeling well, and she was very understanding and compassionate. And I'm sure she just moved on with her day. Well, I told my husband that I had canceled plans. And he said, you should tell her what's happening. Tell her what's going on. I thought, how in the world can I do that? But I did. I told her that the reason I had canceled plans was that I had persistent, overwhelming suicidal ideation. And I didn't feel like I could leave my house. And I just couldn't do the things that we had planned. And I can't imagine receiving that information via text. (laughs) That's kind of heavy. But in a way, it was easier because I didn't have to look at her. (laughs) And um, I mean, she's one of my dearest friends. And I didn't think that I could look at her to tell her this shameful thing that I was doing. And she was extremely kind and compassionate. She immediately expressed her love for me and her desire for me to stay on this planet and pledged to do whatever she could to help me. She also interestingly said, I'm probably going to make mistakes as we go through this. So just know that it comes from a place of love. And I appreciated that she was so open and real about her experience. I also learned later that she was so overwhelmed that she needed support in order to support me. (laughs) But I thought it was awesome that she sought that support and was still able to help me and dealt with this really emotionally um, heavy thing, but didn't treat it like a burden. So she was the first of several that I asked, and I had only planned to ask two or three people. But it felt so good to talk about what was really happening with me that I reached out to a few more people. One person had just asked me to lunch and we were not close friends and it just came up and I told her how I was feeling and it was a great relief to talk to her. And it was a great relief to talk to a few of my close friends about what was happening. So I highly recommend getting a team together, (laughs) whether they're close friends or not so close friends. And uh, Team Heidi has made a huge difference in my life. Team Heidi. Oh, I I can see those T-shirts on a cruise ship right now. (laughs) I'm sure my friends would love to wear them. (laughs) When you said it, it felt good. Can, Can you help us dig a little deeper into that emotion because good is, is not an emotion it's kind of a state sure. uh, and just for the listeners so that they can be, feel and be in that space with you i think that secrets have power and when i shared my secret the power transferred from the secret to me i had i felt liberated and um I don't know, kind of the opposite of overwhelmed. Like I felt free to, it's just the freedom of being seen for who you are, where you are in the moment. And that can happen for any reason, a good reason or a bad reason to be seen really as you are. And that is the experience that I had telling my friends about Uh, my suicidal thoughts, they, I spoke truth and they were kind and it was amazing. 
Yeah, it sounds when you said liberated, that's such a beautiful word, almost like it was a, a release or you felt uh, unshackled or, um, yeah. you know, like uh, uh, rescued in some way. Like, oh, OK, you guys got me. You're my team. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And that it, that thing with the secret is such a real principle for me, the the secrets having power and release just speaking it out loud releases some of the power. And that is the power was, you know, my, my suicidal thoughts had power over me. They were hanging over me. They were hanging on me. And all of that started to release when I acknowledged that they existed. So power also, uh, do you, would you say you felt more powerful or more empowered i would say empowered that i had i was developing the skills that i needed to deal with my suicidal thoughts and one of the skills that i needed was talking about it when you thought about assembling this a team this heidi team right i like this this we'll call it the h team okay <laughs> <laughs> You know, I have like, I don't know, probably thousands of people on my cell phone. And not that I talk to thousands of people, but, you know, just over time, you, you collect mm -hmm. the phone numbers. And I'm not going to send a, a, a group text to all of them and be like, hey, would you like to join my mental health team kind of thing? <laughs> How did you select who was going to be on a squad? Because I would imagine there's there's someone who might be close to you we spend a lot of time with, but you're like, I don't know if they could be on a squad for this. Yeah. Um, that's a good observation that sometimes there's closeness, but not complete transparency. Mm. And I, you know, there are some situations like that. There are some people that it was easier to talk to than others, but the first thing I did was make a list an actual physical list of people that I thought could handle it. And, but mostly it was people that I felt connected to, whether it was a friendship reason or an ecclesiastical reason or um, the friend that I talked to at lunch was completely unplanned that she is a delightful human being, but I had not considered sharing this part of me with her until it just came up in conversation. So there was another friend who was a friend and I felt like the relationship had a lot of potential, but we hadn't really had any connecting, really connecting moments that, I felt would, you know, really bond us or something. But it was the promise of the connection that I felt that made me decide to talk to her. And I was really grateful that I did. And some, a friend from church that we had some connections, but only some, I decided that I wanted her to know. And I am so grateful that I did. I think some things have come from that that wouldn't have come organically. So I was thoughtful about it in some ways and other things just happened. And I think there are probably five or six people plus my husband who were on the team. They are still on the team because I will always need them. <laughs> Yeah. How did your husband, let me rephrase it. How did you feel supported by your husband? I mean, you shared earlier that he encouraged you to talk to your friends, to open up and be intimate, but in what other ways did you feel supported or empowered by your husband? Um, I appreciated that he, number one, believed me and number two, took me seriously because he's the first person I told. and. I imagine that there are situations where someone 
approaches another person and says, I'm having suicidal thoughts and gets brushed off or isn't believed, doesn't, the person doesn't appreciate how serious it is or how real it is. Um, that has not been my experience, but I was so grateful in the moment when I approached him that he believed me and he took me seriously. And then he said, what can I do? And he would have done anything, anything to help me in that moment. I know he would have. I was terrified of being hospitalized. I don't know why that particular, I am fixated on that particular phobia, but I'm terrified of being hospitalized. And so that was a big reason I didn't tell people, but I trusted him to know maybe when we needed to take that step or if there were other things we could do first. Um, He encouraged me to call my therapist immediately. And I did, it was a Saturday. And um, it was a tough thing to call my therapist on the weekend. I, I didn't feel like I deserved that attention and didn't want to make a bigger deal of it than it really was. But his pushing me to call her was very important for me. I really needed to have that conversation with my therapist and receive the strength that she offered and the direction that she offered and the support and um, on another level, Gary is really good at helping with things that just need doing. And my love language is acts of service all the way like the other ones don't even register so he um he made sure the dishes were done and he would take the kids out to dinner so that i didn't have to deal or take all of us out to dinner because i couldn't be left alone (laughs) but he would he would make sure that dinner was taken care of and he would take his places and do errands and do chores and different things uh to make sure that the household was running smoothly um And that was a huge weight off of me because I was so aware of what wasn't being done while I was lying in bed. And he just attended to all of those details. What was his release? I worry sometimes that he doesn't have one, Mm. that he is a, an unfailing caregiver who doesn't um, do much for himself. There are some social things that he does for himself regularly, but, you know, he doesn't have a therapist to complain to and (laughs) things like that. But I try to check in with him and make sure that the the business of caring for his wife isn't wrecking his life. You you shared that your therapist, I mean, one, it was powerful when you shared, didn't feel uh, you deserved your therapist's attention, which I, I, you know, which she would about. really resent me saying. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, but but it's but your but it's truth and it's honesty and you know it's it's how you feel and uh were there what modality does your therapist work in? One, um, as I'm thinking about people struggling with bipolar, bipolar two specifically, like what's his mode that you found really connects with you? Uh, my favorite thing that we do is EMDR. Really? Yes, I love EMDR. Say more. Um, EMDR is a little, it helps me make connections with things in other parts of my life, my childhood, teenage years, young mom, all the all the different segments of my life. And my brain is able to think about all of them and how they're related. So we'll we'll go through and my therapist will ask me a question, something to think about, and then we'll go along as I'm holding the paddles and I think about random stuff. But it always comes back around. By the time we finish, there are always connections 
to important things. And it's a very soothing, calming process to me. I have gotten very emotional, but I have never gotten riled up about it. And so sometimes we'll just do low level EMDR if I come into the office and I am worked up. So that is my favorite thing that we do. We do cognitive behavioral therapy where you kind of change your thinking patterns. And when I am very depressed, I am unable to come up with a positive thought to replace a negative thought. So people on my team help me with this. (laughs) It's not a formal setting at all, but I will say, I can't think of one positive thing to think. Just, I, there's nothing. Help me think of one positive thing to think. And maybe they'll say, this won't last forever, or you will get better, or you've triumphed over this before. People with healthy brains have to think of those things for me when I'm really low. So. And I jump in here for a second. Yeah. You know, I had someone on the podcast, Kelly Mackin, and uh, she was trained in uh, meditation, something else. And she shared with me something that was interesting because I had always thought about, okay, because my therapist works in cognitive behavioral therapy also, and, you know, replaced the negative thought with a positive thought. And she said, well, if that's not accessible, then replace the negative thought with a neutral thought. Mm. So if you say, you know, if you're thinking, I hate my body, and you can't think of a positive thing to say about your body, then say something neutral about your body. So then you go, I have a body. So that's not positive or negative. It's neutral. And it's in this life, there's not a, you know, if you can't think of a, a, beautiful thing of your life or a beautiful thing to think about or anything that positive to think about be like I have thoughts Mm -hmm. and sometimes I think about x you know and I think about x y and z like whatever the neutral statement and I was like wow what a beautiful interesting way and I was like I'm gonna talk to my therapist about this how was she (laughs) (laughs) And, and, and and not that my therapist has never talked about neutrality but not in that way. That's why I love this podcast is like mm-hmm. so many people, no matter how many years of, of training, you know, we all, ha- we're all still learning and we're all still growing together. And I was like, wow, I love the neutral statement. Yeah, that is, that is great. I've actually been working with someone related to anxiety lately and she has these scenarios of um, things you can do in response to your anxiety. But if you can't do the fully positive thing, then do something halfway. And I love permission to do something halfway. It's okay to not do it perfectly. The statements that I listed are very positive. You know, you will get better. And sometimes I just can't get there. It doesn't sound believable. So something more neutral would feel more comfortable sometimes, I think. You know what my new mantra has been, and I love that you said halfway, is it's just a rough draft. Oh, I love that. Yeah. I In yeah. school, I, I, I recognize like I would, there were things I didn't turn in because I was afraid. I wanted to be perfect. I didn't want to show anything unless it was perfect. And now as I'm getting older, I I have this idea of like, oh, it's just a rough draft. I'll yeah. I'll give it to them. They'll give me feedback. They'll make it better. And then it'll be great. Like I can't, but but I'm more humble now as I'm getting older. When I was young, I was like, I have the best ideas. I got this. I'm going to like, wait till you guys see. Like I wanted to show off and it was so ego driven. And now that I'm getting older, I realize how not fun that is to do things myself. Like, it's so much more fun to do things in collaboration with other people than I, because 
my ego wants all the credit. I want to be like, look what I did. Right. But I can't get to that space unless we do it. Right. Um, wow, that was profound. Look at that, Leah. I like what you're doing. Um, but uh, but but yeah, so I, it's a it's a beautiful space to be to just I think of everything now because I've I've accepted my perfectionistic ways. And so the antidote for that for me is, you know, just a rough draft. They'll give me feedback and it'll be I love my that. name will be on it. So great job. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, you used the word earlier. You said ecclesiastical reason. I had first I had to look up ecclesiastical. I don't I don't like <laughs> Sorry. all these I don't like all these uh syllables you're throwing at me. It's too early. And uh, relating to the Christian church. A leader at church. That's, Say it again. That's what I, a leader at church. Or oh, a that's, leader at church. That's uh, what I meant by that. Okay. Uh, uh, what role has the church played in supporting you? And if not the church, the Bible. Because I remember when I was in college, I had to read Proverbs to get me through football camp every night. And I was, I'm not a Bible reader, but it was something okay. about Proverbs that spoke to me. Is there a book in the Bible that speaks to you or is there a way in which the, you found solace in the church? So many great questions. <laughs> I love the New Testament with uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John talking about the Savior's life. I um, find a lot of comfort in that. Um I'm a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, and uh, we believe that the Book of Mormon is scripture. And I love the Book of Mormon, and I spend time in the Book of Mormon every day. And um, as a church, we are studying the New Testament every day. So there are lots of great things. I'm a Sunday school teacher, and um, the scriptures are a big part of my life. Um, As far as what I meant when I was saying, you know, an ecclesiastical leader. There are two people that I reached out to, and um, one was my bishop, who is just the leader of the congregation. Um, that position has different names in different churches, but um, he is a lay minister. It is not his full-time job to be uh, the bishop of our ward. He has other, he has a family, and a job and other responsibilities, but he serves in this capacity for a few years at a time. And um, then it's someone else's turn, but he was very encouraging and soothing to talk to was very kind, was very, um, he believed me and he supported me immediately. And I appreciated that and was able to give me a, a blessing, which is, I don't know, like a a way to comfort someone. And the other person is the 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 leader of the women's organization at church is called Relief Society, and she's the president. And I've had that responsibility before. And for a period of time, I was in charge of all the women in our congregation. It's a huge job. <laughs> it's a huge job. But um, I wasn't especially close to our president, but I knew that when I was in that position, that leadership position, that I would want to know if one of my women was suffering in that way. And that's why I reached out to her. And that's really why I reached out to the bishop, too, because I have been in leadership positions in our church, and I would want to know if someone was suffering. And that has been, um, ah, your bed, Philip. That has been a beautiful relationship the last few months. I love that. How often are you meeting with this group of women that that you've assembled, or is there, you know, are, when you when you're going through it, are you messaging them all at the same time, or? Are you just like aware of you just are they just on notice that this is what you're going through? So when you reach out, it's not uh, a surprise. We've never met as a group. I've never texted as a group. 
It's always been on an individual basis. But the thing that I love about it is that we can see each other and not talk about it. And they know. They just know. And right now I'm doing better. I haven't had suicidal thoughts in a few months, but they know that it's a tendency. And and at the time when things were really critical, we could, a lot of us go to church together and we would see each other in the hall and there would just be a hand on the arm or just a quick hug. No words, no words. I have one friend who said, we've decided that we hate the question, how are you? (laughs) Because it is so difficult to answer when the answer is bad. What do I say when someone at church stops me and says, how are you doing? Well, I had 17 suicidal thoughts during the last meeting. How about you? (laughs) That doesn't work. So we say, it's so great to see you, which is true. But it's code for, I know you're probably having a crappy day, but I see you and I love you. And that we just, we came up with that at lunch one time. We just decided that that is how we would greet each other and try to abolish the how are you question. (laughs) I absolutely love that because I also hate how are you. Uh, and, and, And I hate it not for the reason of, you know, if, if I'm having a bad day, I mean, that's part of it. Then how do you answer that? But it's such an overwhelming question because yes. when you ask, how are you? I'm like, what part of me are you talking about? You talking about <laughs> the physical me, the emotional me, the mental me, the the yeah. career me, like, you know how many, like, I'm like the United States of Leo over here. Like there's, <laughs> there's 50 parts of me. What part are you? That's it's great. like, how's America doing? It's like, what Idaho food like Detroit right. like what part are you talking about or that one guy in Idaho oh that one guy in Idaho like what are you talking about how are you and I tell my therapist this all the time she always starts off with how are you and I tell her I hate that question and then I'll <laughs> launch into a one hour see I'm so emotional about it right now this is exactly what I do in therapy like she goes how are you and then I just talk for about 50 minutes and then she goes okay we'll see you next week no, well, now you can say in response, it's so great, so to, great see to see you. And I, here's what I'd like to discuss today. I love that. See, you're taking the onus off of me. That's the other thing that I hate about that question. You're putting the onus on me to say something interesting to engage you instead right. of you taking the time. Or also it feels there's a lack of thoughtlessness to that question because if you really cared about me, then you'd be following up with me and not asking about me. You'd be like, hey, how was the the thing you went to last night? Or did you read that book that we talked about? Mm-hmm. Like that shows me that you really care about me versus this blank, like. The people who will text me about this podcast tonight. Yeah. <laughs> are the people who, who don't ask me how I'm doing. <laughs> yeah, they'll be like, how was the podcast? You know, yes. what did you learn and all that? <laughs> Uh, Heidi, this was amazing. Um, last couple questions. What's, you know, last time you were on, you had just written a book, When Mommy Feels Sad, A Mother's Journey Through Depression. Uh, what's been some of the feedback that you've received from that that's really nourished you in some way? I always love hearing stories about the book helping someone. And that's the reason that I wrote it. And it is not a bestseller. It, you know, I've only sold a few hundred copies. It's not something that's gained national attention or anything. But I think that it's helped a few hundred people. I think the people who have the book have benefited from the book. And I I love hearing, well, my favorite page is, and my favorite illustration is, and my favorite uh, comment is, I, I just love hearing those little snippets. Makes it feel like it was worth it to publish the book. Reese Witherspoon, get on it. Let's let's get the book. Let's get it in a Reese Witherspoon book club and let's make a movie about this. Come on, Reese. Reese Witherspoon got a copy of it in the mail. Oh, she did? <laughs> oh, yeah. I like what I like what you're doing there, Heidi. Look at you. <laughs> a little go-getter. All right. Just uh, try it. last two questions. Uh, okay. And actually, 
the so here's the penultimate question since you threw ecclesiastical at me. Here's the penultimate question. Um, I always imagine there's one person listening in who may be on the precipice of wanting to end their life. Before you kill yourself, what would you say to them, Heidi? I would say that you matter. Your existence matters. Your relationships matter. Your contributions matter. And you're not a burden. You're probably thinking that you're a burden to whoever lives with you or works with you or is your friend. And you're not. It's worth the effort to stay because people need you. They need the one and only you. They need me and they need Leo because of our individual characteristics and what we bring to the world. And no one else is like you. No one else can do what you do and say what you say and be who you are. So you would be missed. You're irreplaceable. So please stay. And last question, what are you looking forward to in the next 24 hours? (laughs) Can I look at my calendar? (laughs) (laughs) I am looking forward to going to a volleyball game tonight. My son's girlfriend is on the varsity team of their high school. And uh, my husband and kids and I are going to go cheer her on. And I love volleyball. I play with friends once a week. And it's a really fun part of my life. So I really enjoy watching other people compete. And that is happening in one hour. Wow. (laughs) Look at that timing. Thank you so much, Heidi. Thank you, listeners, for tuning in. Remember, this podcast is not a substitute for you going to get help, calling the 988 or any of the 800 numbers listed in all of the show notes. You can talk, chat, text. You can go to thrivewithleo.com for one-on-one coaching with yours truly. Let's get to tomorrow together. Thank you, Heidi. Thank you so much.